Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. As consumer interest in health, wellness, and sustainability has lifted better for you brands out of the dark corners of stores to become a mainstream phenomenon in every category, Marketers have gravitated to founders' stories and social missions to attract the attention of purpose-driven consumers. And while branding expert David Lemley argues in his book, Beloved and Dominant Brands, that this is good because the world needs more companies devoted to environmental sustainability, transparency in sourcing, clean ingredients, fair wages, and ethical practices, he also notes that good isn't enough to sustain a company long-term in today's competitive food and beverage marketplace. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, Lemley breaks down the explosive growth of better-for-you brands, explains why it's not enough to have a killer idea and a killer product and a founder's passion, and shares how brands can protect themselves from the inevitable flood of Me Too products by reaching what he calls beloved and dominant status. Over the past 7 to 10 years, Lemley explains that better-for-you brands have set a new standard for products across categories, but in doing so, the values that once set them apart have become table stakes for many modern consumers. Better-for-you brands come from two distinct camps. The first would be the brands that are out to make natural and organic and clean ingredients mainstream. And so that's one sector. And then there's another sector that is really driven by their ideology is we want to make the world a better place and we're triple bottom line focused. So that means that they're about people, planets, and profits. Now, profits being in the last place. So they care for humanity. They are focusing on sustainable more than the ingredient quality. So those are the two camps. And I think that those have come out because, in my opinion, you know, the, the food system has been, um, was broken during the middle of the 20th century and created a whole bunch of situations where food was not good for people. So this uh, next generation of entrepreneurs that are the offspring of the original sort of co-op, hardcore, organic people have come out and with an entrepreneurial mindset set out to disrupt the food system. And so we love that. We also love the idea of a triple bottom line organization having some sort of give back and, and caring for the planet. And so I, I believe that it's happening and come to, to be such a prominent thing now because people are out there and that because of digital and social media, they're able to understand that the system is broken and that you are what you eat. And if we don't take care of the planet, there are going to be problems. I think that's happening. I think technology has allowed food scientists and farmers to play the game in a, on a different level. And then because we're so digital, social, and most people walk around with a phone plugged into their face on some level, there is this different kind of human need that is happening where we want brands to be citizens of our world because they now permeate our lives. And so we want them to be do-gooders and care for the planet and help us make decisions so that we get to be better individuals by affinity to that brand. 
However, Lemley Caution's Better For You brands run into trouble if they're so focused on doing good that they forget about the real world and the need to build a brand beyond just the product or the social mission that they offer. Well above 85% of new product ideas in this category fail within the first year. And I think it has to do with uh, being so optimistic about it that they're not being real world applicable. They're not looking at the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of what it takes to run a business and build a brand. And I think that the ones that do focus on that uh, have an advantage. And, and the reason why I say in the book that it's, it's no longer enough to have that killer idea and a killer product and have the founder's passion is because the whole premise is that any, anyone can come up with a great idea, and ideas are the creativity that make humanity worthwhile and all those sorts of things. But once you have that, if it's any good at all, somebody's going to knock it off. Somebody's going to copy it. And it might be one of your ingredient suppliers. It might be your favorite retailer. It could be the one that knocks it off. So having a product features and benefits focused item and building a brand around that is not radically differentiating. And, and founder passion used to be something really amazing and rare in the previous generation. You know, we held up Steve Jobs or we hold up Zuckerberg or we hold up anybody who's built something that was bold and iconic, there's usually an individual behind it. Well, now in this entrepreneurial wild west of better for you and clean ingredient food and beverage, everybody's ideology driven. So you need something beyond your own charisma as a founder owner to get your why out there so that it, it is present with the brand at the shelf in the communication strategy and with your sales team when you're not in the room. So this may sound obvious, but Lemley says it's easy for brands that take off out of the gate to underestimate the risks because they're riding a wave of success. However, he warns in his book, no matter how experienced or well-intentioned the leadership teams, we see that better for you brands tend to follow a predictable trajectory. Lemley explains this includes starting out as the first and only product that meets a consumer demand. This naturally evolves to dominant by default, at which point the risk of becoming one of many emerges. Becoming the first and only is, so that's where the founder has an idea or the inventor has an idea and they come up with something and it's amazing. And everybody that they let try it says, this is the, the best thing I've ever seen. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's made of this. or I can't believe there's only six ingredients or whatever thing becomes the empowerment to push them forward. And that gives their vision and their passion focus, and they're able to go out and get it somewhere, some channel, some, some distribution starts to happen, and they become beloved by default because there is no competition. And they start to uh, get traction and gain confidence, and their charisma grows. And as I had talked about a moment ago, they are going to be copied by somebody. It may be somebody small, it may be somebody well-funded and well-organized, or it might be, like I mentioned, their beloved retail partner who has helped them become beloved by default might make a cheaper version of what they're making. And if there's, if there's something really good, like let's say you have, for example, an organic puff or an organic version of a Cheeto, when the, the first one was 
amazing and, and uh, dominant by default. But now that there are dozens and dozens of them, including private label, how do you how do you shop that category? How do you determine which is which? Because there cannot be that. And so what has happened is Cheetos actually gone on to make an organic puff as well. So they, they are back to being, you know, a, a prominent brand in that category. Then you get lost in a sea of sameness of so many competitors that it's hard to differentiate. And what usually happens is the managing team, the founder, owner, the CMO of this entrepreneurial Better For You brand is usually the last person to see it because they have uh, been riding the wave of being successful. The rise of Me Too products doesn't have to be the end of the ride for the once cutting edge Better For You product if the entrepreneurs behind it can achieve what Lemley calls in his book, beloved and dominant status. In order to get back to uh, to becoming dominant and beloved or beloved and dominant as the leader, that this whole book is really about using the framework of a category audit to ask new kinds of questions about your organization that will build you a map that shouldn't change as you start to think about branding and marketing ecosystems to get your why figured out. Because the one thing that I think is really different about a brand that is beloved and dominant, they have a really compelling why. And everyone in the organization is crystal clear on what that why is and how to communicate it internally with suppliers, with vendors, and with their consumers. And so, um, and I call them consumers, but the other thing that's really different about a beloved and dominant brand is they know who their tribe is. So they know how to speak the language of their tribe, which means not just people who buy them once in a while, but they're stark raving fans. They are in dialogue with them. So to that end, when they're doing the conventional communication, such as their digital social or their advertising or their outreach or their PR, they are not talking at them. They are more talking with them. And when a brand is doing that, that, that is how they can be confident that they are on the path to the beloved and dominant status. And then ultimately, market performance follows those things. So if you're like me, the idea of performing an audit is cringeworthy. But Lemley says it's an essential step that cannot be skipped. The, it's such a huge part of really understanding how you fit into the world as a brand. And so thinking of it from a, a competitive audit is the, the most obvious and conventional. And it's really like, okay, so who else is in my space? And what are they making? And how do we fit? And it, and it often takes the form of like, well, what is this shelf adjacencies and that sort of thing? But another way to really look at competitive audit is not just if I'm, for example, in the puffs world where I mentioned before, if you're not just competing with puffs, you're competing with everything that is in adjacency of that shelf. But if you step one step back, you're actually competing with anything that has share of stomach that covers off on those, those things that that person might be wanting salty, crunchy, sweet, or whatever it is. So it's kind of looking at it from that perspective to get a much broader lens on what the competition really could possibly be and understanding how they communicate, which of them have tribes, which of them are feature and benefit driven, so that you can kind of separate those out. It's really distinguishing between what is in the category and what are you truly competing with. 
When Lemley helps clients at his Seattle-based firm Retail Voodoo conduct a competitive audit, he benchmarks the competitive landscape with seven marketing disciplines that he calls the brand ecosystem. This system, which is outlined in his book Beloved and Dominant Brands, takes the form of a pyramid with seven levels, the first and largest of which is consumer education. So if you start with customer education and you're not just about features and benefits, but you're educating on your why and you're educating on your citizen brandhood and you're educating on the fact that you understand and speak the language of the tribe, customer education becomes a dialogue rather than a monologue and a broadcast. So it's, it's really a powerful place to start. And so the way our pyramid works is we put them in the order they are to get them because we want them to be the widest and, and most important. And so you'll notice customer education is wide and flat and covers the base and social is all the way at the top, like a little crowning jewel, which is what we have seen in the world. Most people have that backwards. Most, most brands, particularly in the brands that are quote, targeting millennials or trying to be Instagram worthy, have it backwards. They're focused on social first without a compelling why, but trying to just look good and not having any depth of character or depth of citizenship to their customer education. So it, it tends to not work for them. Likes do not equal relevance. But back to the base. If you start a customer education and you use it the way I've talked about it, being a dialogue and being much more than features and benefits and attributes, and then you use that and push that into your public relations and think of it rather than trying to push out story, but try to get earned coverage and have it focus on your authenticity and who you are as a citizen brand and who the company is about and why they exist and about their tribe, that becomes a thing. And then, and only then, if you're funded properly, does it make sense to do advertising? Because advertising's job conventionally is to try to disrupt. In the modern world, it doesn't work. The the Edelman Earned Brand Report said that uh, When you are doing disruptive advertising, you get 14% or less people are willing to even pay attention to it. But if you have um, told a story where you are a citizen brand and you have a cause and you have some sort of triple bottom line and you are a do-good or better for you brand, you get 80% traction when you do advertise. It's a completely different model. And that's new as of 2019. So anyway, from advertising, we think of advertising like a bat signal. It should pay off on your um, earned storytelling, your earned media, your, your authenticity relations, and it should, should harken back to the customer education platform that you've established. Otherwise, you're trying to uh, play in the here by this space, which doesn't work for most, most brands, especially in the better for you food and beverage world. And then from we ladder up from that, the in-store. The in-store part of the book is really, I think, a really different part. Uh, on the surface, in-store is really, okay, what does it look like on the shelf? How does, how does that handle it? But the book goes on to talk about whether you are the product trying to get on the shelf or the brand who owns the shelf you're trying to get products on. So it talks about both sides, and it invites the founder marketing in investor team of the Better For You brand to start to think about what the need states of the consumer, the retailer, the whole ecosystem around that and start getting them to audit themselves and ask 
different kinds of questions about that relationship and how the retailer's knowledge can help you make better decisions about what kind of products you create, how you talk about them, that sort of thing. So it gets into that. Um, and then from there, the in-store, we ladder up to the website, which in our world, the website should be the center of your universe. It should be your consumer. If they want to go find the sun in your galaxy, that's where they should go. And it should be a conversation that covers off on everything. And it should be where if they are in the store and they're interested in you and they have, for whatever reason, never heard of you and go find you on Instagram, they should be able to, in a click or two, get to find any of the authenticity or storytelling or transparency that they are going to be looking for through you at that point. And then from there, the next plank, if you will, in this pyramid is direct, but it's not our grandfather's direct mail. Direct is when your consumers, your tribe has opted into your universe. So it's really dialogue. It's not couponing them. It's dialoguing with them about how to make the world better, if that is in fact your point of view, or how they can live their most uh, fulfilling life or their, be their best version of themselves. So it's, it's much more of a one-on-one one -one education and inspiration opportunity. And then from there, we put social at the top, because once you have all those things in place, everything in your world is Instagrammable and shareable to those people. And then in that case, you can't, actually track what they're doing and you can uh, quantify it rather than just counting likes and hoping that that turns into uh, financial performance someday. So that's kind of the base shape and why we put it in the pyramid. Lemley digs into each of these seven elements in much more detail in his book and includes real life examples of brands that have effectively executed each step. He also guides readers through specific questions they should ask themselves at each level as part of their audit to ensure that they're on the right path and to know when they're ready to level up. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all the nitty gritty, but for listeners who are interested in learning more, they can find Lemley's book, Beloved and Dominant Brands on Amazon. With that, we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week. And to ensure that you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week. 